Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. And today we are here with Sven Longshanks once again to present the next segment of our Bible Basics series, which is part eight. We're going to rehash some of the things that we had discussed previously, only because we have to fill out the narrative that we had had, had begun last week concerning the wheat and the tares, concerning the children of God, and why certain people in the old in the New Testament are considered to be children of the devil. Hello, Sven. Thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Yeah, glad to be here once again. I think it was a really good uh, episode last week. I've had um, good comments on that from listeners that said that they really enjoyed it. I mean, we really went into quite some depth into the intertestamental period and uh, the way that Esau or Edom took over Judea in exactly the same way that... Um, you know, our, our countries are taken over today. And just, just before we went on air, we were just talking about the, the repetition of things throughout history. And it's almost like time is, is cyclical and, and, and we keep repeating the same mistakes. And we're going to see repetition again today. Um, events happening right at the beginning there that were then repeated after the flood and, uh, are still being repeated today with these, these race mixing incidents so yeah and also today i think we're going to be looking at the the serpent seed which is where you get the the, the dual seed line christian identity where the phrase actually comes from because believe it or not we haven't actually gone into the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman yet which is which is pretty foundational stuff and also um cain and abel really important really important stuff we're going to be getting into today so yeah i'm looking forward to it bill wonderful I um I usually date my podcasts. I'm, I'm hesitant to date this one. It's actually April 27th right now, and and this will probably broadcast at Christagenia next Sunday. This Sunday I have um Dennis Wise. We had a long talk, and and I think it was pretty good. And um a lot of my listeners are just waiting to hear that. Excellent. I look forward to this, hearing that uh, myself. Last week we left off, I believe we left off with John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, Christ tells his adversaries that they, their race, he uses the word Ganea, and the, the word basically means a, a family a, a tribe or a race, it, it refers to, and, and the Greeks had actually used it in a narrow way where a Ganea was, uh, could be a race within a nation, right? Like it, if, if you had um, sons and they had sons, that would be the Ganea of Sven, if Sven was a notable man, within the, the British nation, right? So, so they used it today. We use this this idea of race in a wider sense, but today we understand that many nations of people can be derived from the same Ganea, right? Like the Germanic people, 
all descended from from, from a particularly small group of, of or much smaller group of Germans and branched out to form many nations in Europe. So we see today the opposite side of the coin. But Christ had blamed all of the um, the death of all of the prophets from Abel to Zacharias on this generation or this race. And in that instance, Ganea must refer to a race and not just a, a group of people all living at one time, because he's talking about fathers and sons. He, he's talking about your fathers killing them and you building their sepulchers, you building their tombs, their monuments. He's talking about fathers and sons from the distant past until his time. So Ganea has to mean race there. It can't mean generation. Even when the word does mean generation, which it does on a, a couple of times in scripture, it's really only talking about all the people of a particular race who are alive at one time. So you can't separate that word um, genea from its racial implication. And that's the word we get genealogy from and gene and, and all of those related words. So why did Christ blame this particular type of individual, this race of individuals, why did he blame them for the blood of Abel? How are they liable for the blood of Abel? And in John 8, 44, we discussed the, um, the fact that Christ had told his adversaries, the same group of people, that they were of their father, the devil, so their father's devil first, and that he was a murderer from the beginning. Who is a murderer from the beginning but the the descendants of Cain? Cain was only was the only one who be called who could be called a murderer from the beginning because he's the first recorded murderer and <laughs> back in Genesis chapter four. So what is the link that these people at the time of Christ, these Edomite infiltrators, as we explained last week, what is the link that they have to Cain? And, and that's, I think, where we have to start. What, what we um, didn't get to last night, or, or I'm sorry, last week or in our last presentation was the, um, was the revelation and and Christ had um told these people basically that they were not Israelites, that they were not truly his people, they weren't Judah, that and they weren't really Judeans. And and when we get to Revelation chapter two, what we see Christ speaking to the um the seven churches, the seven Christian churches. And he, he says, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Judeans or Jews, as it's translated, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And that concept is repeated in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, in one of the messages to the later churches, and, and I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews or Judeans and are not, 
but do lie. Yet, you know, you were saying about um, how Jews, how these people that we know today as Jews infiltrate and corrupt nations. And a lot of um, a lot of racially aware whites today, white nationalists, if I have to call them that, or nationalist leaning types despise the Bible because they see it as Jewish. <laughs> but under their very eyes, they recognize in modern times that these people have infiltrated and corrupted all of our governments so that today we see our own governments and institutions as Jewish. And, and that's because they have such a preponderance of Jews running them or of Jewish influence or Zionist influence that they appear and they function in, in, in that manner as if they are Jewish institutions rather than Christian institutions. And, and everything they do favors Jews rather than favoring native white Christians. The churches are an excellent example of that to the extent that they've been Judaized. But these white nationalists don't understand that the same thing happened in, 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 ancient, in the ancient world. It happened over and over again. It happened to Egypt because Egypt was infiltrated and, and the pharaohs had intermixed with the same Edomites and, and Hittites and other Canaanites that the Jews are today. It happened in Egypt. It happened in Babylon. It happened in Palestine. And, and here we are in what we explained last week from, from, from about 130 BC or, or thereabouts down to 70 AD. We have a, a world that is a, a, a world, I mean an area with a government, I'm not talking about the whole planet. We have a world that is essentially taken over, infiltrated, and controlled by these same Edomites who are related to these Canaanites, and, and they become predominant in this world, and this is what Christ is opposing. This is what he and his apostles are in opposition to, and, and we're doing that same thing today. So what we can't, we have to look at this Bible from a whole different light that, than how these Judaized churches have taught us to look at it. And the Judaization of the churches goes back a thousand years in European history. We could go back to the 13th century and a converted Jew named Nicholas of Lyra wrote a Bible commentary. And that Bible commentary was pushed and pushed and pushed in 13th century Europe and became the most popular Bible commentary used by Christian theologians. And that was, that Bible commentary was enhanced in the 14th century by somebody named Paul of Burgos who was a converted rabbi that became a bishop in, in, in the Spanish Catholic Church. So Paul of Burgos was another converso Jew, and he enhanced and added to the Bible commentary of Nicholas of Lyra. And if you read on the Jews and their lies, 
Martin Luther was getting all of his arguments against the Jews from, and he quoted them over and over again, Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos. So even Martin Luther was getting his theology, or a great deal of it, from crypto-Jews that infiltrated the Christian church in, in the 13th and 14th centuries. So we have to erase all of this knowledge that we think we have and go back to the original documents and examine them and do our best to examine them in their proper historical context. And, and that's what we do with Christian identity. That, that's exactly what we do. We erase the years of um, Jewish subversion of Christianity, which really began in the second century AD. And, and we start from the beginning and reinterpret all of this for ourselves without the um, Jewish influence we're not looking at this scripture through the lens of the Jews, and, and we come up with entirely different answers than, it's than what the churches. It's amazing that could happen, Bill. You know, it's, it's amazing I'm, that that could happen. It's really amazing that could happen, you know, despite everything yes. that, that, that Christ said about them. I mean, he said they were devils, a race of vipers, uh, you know, master of lies, and, and yet here we have the new Christians listening to the Jews and asking the Jews how to interpret the Bible for them. It's right. It's incredible. It is incredible to me. It is incredible, but it, it happened and, and it happened. And, and I can only blame the Roman Catholic church for it because in, in the fourth century. Okay. When you look, when you read the early Christian writers, You'll find um, in Irenaeus, who wrote about 180 AD, in Tertullian, who wrote about up to about 220 to 240 AD, Justin Martyr, who wrote about 160 AD, and, and, and half a dozen others, Origen, Clement of Rome, Clement of Alexandria. You read all these early Christian writers. You do not find the words, the, the phrase Christian priest. For 300 years in early Christian writing, from the apostles uh, up until the, the um, beginning of the fourth century, I believe, you do not find the phrase Christian priest. There is no Christian priest. This priesthood was developed when, the, when Christianity became so popular that the empire had to begin to accept it, all of these pagan priests suddenly became Christian priests. This Christian priesthood, it, it slowly developed from the third century, where these pagans, these pagan priests, began to take their pagan rituals and put Christian terms and labels and, and pick through the New Testament scriptures to find ways to systematize Christianity, which is what they did. Catholicism was never Christianity. Roman Catholicism, as we know it, was never Christianity. It was paganism reformed into Christianity. That's why 
pagans today despise the Roman Catholic Church saying, oh, that's pagan, or oh, that's pagan, or oh, that's pagan. Those rituals, those rites, yeah, they are pagan, but they're not Christian. They never were. I discussed that at great length last night, that the, um, the, the Catholic Church believes in magic through these pagan rituals. To the Catholic Church, race has never mattered. The racial message of the covenants of Christ have never mattered. What matters is that you go through this ritual and it will magically convert you into something that you were not before. And you become a Christian. And this ritual, the, they, they believe so much in the magical power of their baptism ritual and their communion ritual that they could turn a devil into a sheep, that they could turn a Jew into a human person. They believe that. So where did that they, come from? They, Even that came from the Jews as well, didn't it, Bill? You know, the, the baptism, that was, that was a Jewish rite before yes, Christians it adopted if, it. If, and, and we've quoted this. Um, John Lightfoot understood this. John Lightfoot was a, a Protestant theologian, understood this in, in the 16th century when he wrote his own Bible commentary. He explained that the baptism ritual comes straight from the Talmud, that the Talmudic Jews had the mikvah, which they still have today, which is the ritual bath, and that they would put you in the bath and take you out and circumcise you, put you in the bath and, and wash you and take you out, and when you emerged from the water, you were, quote-unquote, an Israelite. And Jesus Christ condemned the Pharisees for that, saying that when they converted a proselyte, they made him twice fold the child of hell <laughs> because he, that they created, basically they created interlopers. They created intruders among the, the, their own kind, and, and they destroyed themselves doing that, just like Christian churches today are baptizing these Negroes and destroying themselves doing that. Once the Negro's baptized, he marries your daughter. Then you get a whole generation of little half-breeds, and we become Egypt. What We become India. That's what we're becoming through this idea of magic, this, this belief in magic that you could change the, the essential nature of somebody. The Catholic Church uses the term <clears throat> ontological the ontological being of somebody. The ontology is a metaphysical belief in the essence of your being. Well, well, to identity Christians, the essence of your being comes from your genetics. It, it comes from whether or not you were actually created by God or if you're some kind of corruption of God's creation. Your, your essence, it we, we are pragmatists. We are racial realists. You can't change a Negro into a white European or into a Christian by immersing him in water and saying some kind of magical incantation over him like the Catholic Church believes. That's basically what they believe. I think that and whole that's idea. It was okay. It was okay when the world was all white. In, in medieval Europe, it was okay. But when these Jews were admitted to the empire and, and the church had to apply its own theology to them as well, 
because it was universal in its doctrines. They couldn't deny them. So when these Jews wanted to get baptized to say they were Christians so that they could pervert and corrupt and undermine Christianity, the Catholic Church had to go along with it. That's exactly what happened in, in a nutshell. And the Jews is where it, where it came from, as we discussed last week, um, the proselytes of the gate and the proselytes of justice. And as you were j just saying there, they make, when Jesus said they make some proselytes of hell, his idea of, of going out and converting non-whites and, and converting other races, that's, that's a Jewish idea. And, and the first heresy was Judaizing. It, it, the first heresy was encouraging Jewish ideas and bringing Jewish ideas into Christianity. And why is it that they, how, how could it be that they have succeeded in doing this? Well, they succeed in doing it because they have diabolical help. That, that can be the only answer, I think. You know, they, they originate from the devil exactly as Christ told us. But we just, we ignored it and, and thought we knew better and thought that we could convert them. You can't convert devils. You can't convert, you can't there, convert non-whites. There was at one time a great plethora of ancient writings, some of them Christian and some of them pseudo-Christian, produced in the first few centuries of Christianity. And today, we do not have a fraction of them. We don't have a fraction of them. We only have what the medieval Roman Catholic Church chose to preserve. And sometimes it's evident that those writings weren't preserved without um, being edited, let's put it that way, or being miscopied or interpolated. So <clears throat> that's another reason why we have to wipe the slate clean and go back to um, the original documents as original as we can get and the ancient inscriptions and, and the classical records, the Greek and, and Roman histories and, and myths and legends of the early Greeks and, and sort it all out once again for ourselves. And, and that's what we have done in Christian identity. That's what we have done. We, we don't have, I, I mean, we all are going to have some baggage from, from modern times, but we really try to um, see through it all and, and start with a clean slate and eliminate all the baggage that we can. We may not be 100%. I mean, when you vacuum your carpet, you get 99% of the dust up, right? You, you just can't ever get it all. So that, that's what we really have attempted to do. The place we should start is Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, Christ, and I'm sorry we've gone off on, on a half-hour digression. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 13, Christ says that he had come to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That That's... Matthew 13, 35, he, the, he explains why he was speaking in parables, and he says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been 
kept secret from the foundation of the world. And he did that, but he uttered those things kept secret in in, in rather poetic allegory, which is what a par- parable is. A parable is an allegory w- which uses um, fantastic or poetic or descriptive language and symbols like trees for, for men to represent actual historical facts or actual entities or, or real things, these allegories like a, a man being a tree or a race of, of, of people being a tree were not actual trees, but in a sense we are trees because we have family branches and we spread out and, and we drop nuts that, that start other family branches in, in other places. So in reality, we are trees, but we're not literal wooden trees with green leaves, right? And, and we, we use that same language to discuss our families. Oh, that branch of my family did this, or that branch of my family did that, or, or, or this is my family tree, which is my genealogy, right? What we use that same language to this day, it's been with us. So if Christ came to other things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world, then we must imagine that all of the information that we need to understand the world is not found in the book of Genesis. Because evidently there were things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Not everything was explained by Moses when he wrote the book of Genesis. And Moses actually wrote the book of Genesis 4,000 years after the events which Genesis describes at its beginning. It's at least 4,000 years. So Moses could not possibly have had the full picture, but he was inspired by God, and that's what Christians should believe, to write what he did. And what we have in Genesis, even though at some point it becomes more of a linear narrative, what we have in Genesis is um, poetic accounts and allegories which convey to us historical truths. They may not be historical chronicles themselves, and and they can't be. Moses wrote these things 4,000 years later, but they do, that. they're sort of like parables themselves that represent truths rather than actually being um, the, the type of history that we are accustomed to reading or writing today of, of events that we actually um, see and perceive and can know a great deal of. So that's Genesis. It it's, represents truths, yes, and, and Christians should understand that. And those truths do reflect the reality of our times and the reality of the more recent history which we do understand so that's how that that's one way how we know that they are indeed truths so christ goes on as soon as as soon as he said he will other things kept secret from the foundation of the world he had just given 
the parable of the wheat and the tares to the people. And he says that. And then after he sends the multitude away, his disciples can't figure out this parable of the wheat and the tares. So he explains it to them once again. And he tells them that the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And that's the same language that he used in John chapter 8. And that's the same language the apostle John used in his first epistle to describe the wicked people that were in Judea that were opposed to Christ. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. John also explained that not every spirit, and he's talking about embodied spirits. He's talking about the nature of a man when he says spirit in his first epistle in chapter four. He says not every spirit is from God and warns his readers to test every spirit, to try every spirit for that reason. In other words, when a man is telling you something, you have to examine the nature of that man and, and, and try him to, to see whether or not he is authentic. And the measure which John used is the measure of Christ, whether or not they were professing Christ, which was significant at that time in the first century, that if they weren't professing Christ, they were not somebody to follow. They had to be rejected because that was the Jew test in the first century. Christianity is a lot more popular than we think it was in the first century. John was writing that in, in about, and, and this could be established, in, in about 90 AD, 60 years after the crucifixion, John was a very old man at that time. He was calling his readers little children. He was probably in his early 80s. And we have the letters of, of um, Pliny the Younger, who was in Bithynia. He was the governor of Bithynia around the beginning of the second century AD. And, and he wrote about the multitudes of Christians that he was going to have to um, execute because, because they wouldn't deny Christianity. So, so we, it, it's historically verifiable that there are indeed um, as many Christians and people professing Christ as John's epistle indicates. So that was the test. And to understand why the apostles and Christ called these people devils, we have to understand their historical origin because Christ insists that it was the devil that sowed these tares into the world, that they did not come from God. So we have to take a, a, a rather pragmatic approach and examine the scriptures and figure out why that is. We could go back to Genesis, but according to Christ, we, we can't understand Genesis unless we have the revelation that he gave us. So where do we start? We don't start with Genesis if we want to understand Genesis. We have to turn to Christ. We have to turn to the parables of Christ and the revelation of Christ. 
the parables tell us that these wicked people did not come from God, that these wicked people came from the devil. Now, in John chapter 8, Christ tells his adversaries that they are of their father, the devil, the murderer from the beginning. So we have to understand that they came from Cain. And in Luke chapter 11, he tells them that they're responsible for the blood of Abel. Only the, the, the Seth wasn't born until after Abel was slain. None of Seth's descendants can ever be blamed for the blood of Abel. It can't be laid upon them. It cannot be laid upon them according to the law of God. They can't have any, any association with that guilt. This is not something spiritual. This is something very real and pragmatic. A murder requires a death penalty. And under the law of God, if you accuse me of something that I am not guilty of, then you must suffer that penalty. So these people had to be guilty of the blood of Abel in one way or another. And the only way they could be guilty of that, because Christ calls them this race, this Ganea, the only way they could be guilty of that is to be of that race, which descended from Cain. In Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, we have a poetic description, and prophetically, I would say that this has happened several times in history, and, and we can maybe get into that in, in the future, but it's the subject of my book on the Revelation, my commentary. And this prophetic picture tells us that this, um, this dragon— this dragon rebelled against God, this great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and, and I would equate them to world empires, and I don't want to get off on too many digressions here, but this dragon is responsible for wanting to kill this child that was born to a certain woman. Now, the woman has a crown of 12 stars, and actually, they must represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So the woman represents the children of Israel, and the child, we see, was destined to rule all nations with the rod of iron. So the child must represent Christ. And the great red dragon wanted to kill the child as soon as it was born. And when we go back to the gospel accounts, we see that Herod the Great wanted to make sure that the Christ child was dead, that he didn't want this Christ child to be born. So Herod the Great was an Edomite, and he represents the dragon. So the dragon is somehow connected to these people, the Edomites, that had taken over Judea. So that's just an indication of the that, that points us in the way of discovering the identity of this dragon and this satanic entity. And then we have another picture which is drawn in this poetic language in the Revelation. And there was war in heaven. Michael, Michael means who is like God. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels. And the dragon didn't prevail and neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Now heaven in ancient manuscripts in Sumerian 
and Akkadian inscriptions. Heaven was an allegory for um, the palaces and seats of government on earth. So we don't necessarily have to believe that this dragon was thrown out of the sky. But we can understand this to be referring to something which happened in prehistoric times, before the time of Adam. And we're going to get to that because Adam wasn't the first man. He was the first man of a particular race, which God had put here. But he wasn't the first man as so far as being the first intelligent two-legged creature on earth. And Genesis will inform us of that when we get to it. So there's this war in heaven and this dragon and a third of the angels are cast out of heaven and their places found no more in heaven. And this dragon is equated to, he's described as being that old serpent. So this is the way that we must understand and this is the words of Christ revealing things kept secret from the foundation of the world. This is the way that we must understand the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. This gives us insight into the identity of the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. And the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth and his angels cast out with him. So we have this, um, this symbolism of something that happened in prehistory. It had to happen in prehistory because this serpent is that old serpent that we see in Genesis chapter 3. It must be a reference to that. Now, this also happened in a way in 70 AD. It happened again. Well, history repeats itself because we are waiting for this to happen again because that serpent keeps crawling back up into heaven, keeps infiltrating governments on earth and taking them over. And, and we've seen that in recent history right before our very eyes for all practical purposes in, in the last 300 years since the, since, the, um, since the French Revolution and the dawn of the age of liberty or whatever you want to call it, the age of humanism or, or that this Masonic Jewish age that we are now in actually began back in the French Revolution. That's when it kicked off, right? In, in the modern time. I'm sorry if I'm getting winded, but, but this is informing us that there is in prehistory, there is a race of people here on earth that had rebelled against God. And when we trace this race of people, we see that their tendency is to corrupt everything that's good, to corrupt the creation of God, to form it in his in their own image. And, and that is the underlying concept of humanism. Secular humanism, Freemasonry, um, Talmudism, and every other philosophy 
that they have spawned. I'm sorry, you might want to say something. Well, no, I'm just 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 fascinated um, by the by the correlation there about the way that they they change everything to to make it look like them, and you you're bringing up humanism and Talmudism, and I'm I'm thinking of it physically and the way that they they corrupt God's creation and turn it to look like them by interbreeding by interbreeding with uh, with God's creation, and today with genetically modified organisms, twisting it because that that is the that has to be the the most wicked most evil thing that they could possibly do, and uh, because that can't be fixed. That, that can't be put right. It can't be fixed. And, and that's why Christ says, speaking of races of men in the, in the Gospels, that the tree is known by its fruit and that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit and that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. As long as you keep to your own tree, that's why Adam was told at the end of Genesis 3, at the end of his punishment, that he must reach out and and grab onto the tree of life, because as long as you keep to your tree, as long as we as as white people cling to our own, we will have eternal life. We we will not ever be corrupted. Now, many of us are prone to sin, and we all sin in one degree or another. But we have the ability, and this is described by Paul in Romans chapters 5 and 6 and and in other places, we, our race, has the ability to overcome the natural beastly instincts which lead us to sin and to build a society based on the rule of law and brotherly love and, and human kindness. We have done that over and over again, but it's always infiltrated, corrupted, and destroyed. Well, who's the infiltrators? Who are the corruptors? Who are the destroyers? It's the same damn Jews every time. And I call them Jews today, but that's not really what they are. They are actually devils. They are a race of devils that have infiltrated and corrupted every single society that we know in history, and they do it through egalitarianism, humanism, and, and, and ultimately race mixing, like you said. Every empire has succumbed to that. And, and that's the story in, in the prophecies of Daniel and the prophecies of the Revelation. And that's the story in history. It should be right in front of our faces. Look at India. Look at Persia. Look at Egypt. Look at Assyria. Look at what happened to to every one of these great empires, even Rome, even the Byzantines, they all had that Jewish influence that was pushing them towards these corrupted Jewish ideals, which caused every great society to become perverted and decadent and, and slide down the pits into hell. I'm sorry, I'm off on another digression. Well, that, that all goes back. We're right, going to get this. It all, it all goes back right to that first instance of it as well, which is which is with the serpent, with, with the tree in the garden. As you've identified, the, the serpent is is the same serpent that um, Christ is talking about in the Revelation. It's this. It, it's uh, it's also Satan, and and he was there in the garden with Eve, and he somehow he's he's got a connection with Cain. 
which is which is what we really need to get into i think and the and the enmity between the the offspring of of cain uh, or or the offspring of this serpent because we're told there is there is offspring of this serpent and there is offspring of of the woman and there is enmity between the two of them so I think we should we should get into right. how that happened and what the evidence is for that as well, because obviously the Judeo Christians will will say, oh no, Cain Cain was fathered by Adam, but there's there's plenty of evidence to show that that is not true. So I think we need to get into that as well. Well, well, right, and and what we're going to focus on, I think, in Genesis three, and and we can't do a whole Genesis commentary. It, it would take me thirty podcasts to do that. I, I've already done, You've it, done that already. kind of <laughs> in, in my pragmatic Genesis series, right? That's my favorite series it, it, as well. That's my favorite it, series it, of yours, that one. Right. If people want to understand all of my aspects and attitudes towards Genesis, the place to start is pragmatic Genesis, but this is Bible basics. <laughs> so we're going to start with Genesis chapter three and, and, and ignore everything that's happened in, in, the, in the previous two chapters, except that I would say that a lot of people want to contend over these trees. There are, in Genesis, um, God planted these other trees. Aren't they the other races? And and no, I'm going to say no, they're not. Adam wasn't told that he could eat fruit from the other races. The law of God all the way through the Bible explains that he shouldn't do that. And in Genesis chapter 2, Adam defines what his wife should be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone that's your only legitimate wife anything other than that and you're not really being married you're really committing fornication you're race mixing you're doing a sin so adam what was told to cling to one tree the tree of life these other trees people want to claim are races they were all planted in the ground they're not necessarily races of people. They were all planted in the ground. There's two trees, however, that were not planted in the ground. And they are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not planted by God in the ground. They are allegories for people. The serpent, that old serpent from Revelation chapter 12, so we know who he is. We know that this is the leader of a race of people that at one time rebelled against God. And they're called fallen angels or Nephilim, which means fallen ones. And the King James Version takes the word Nephilim and, and translates it as giants. I guess the Jews told them to do that. But that's okay because we do have people in um mesopotamian inscriptions that are giants and and as we have giants ruling over people's tribes in the old testament like og of bashan and we have men like goliath that are described as giants we also have that in sumerian literature and akkadian literature like the epic of gilgamesh it's described the same way and and the epic of gilgamesh relates to genesis chapter 6 just like the giants of greek mythology the the um the the giants the race of giants that had that had 
fought with Kronos and Zeus at, at, at the beginning of, of Greek mythology. It, it's the same sort of account. And, and probably they all came from the same place, I'm sure. That the um all of the accounts did, and and they're all related to this ancient um that this knowledge of our prehistory that we see in scripture. So Genesis chapter three, you have two races of people. There's a tree of the life of of, of the um, knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you want to believe that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fruit tree, was a wooden tree, then you may as well go back to the Catholic Church and believe in the rest of their magic rituals, that, that eating a piece of fruit can eject a man from the good graces of God, whom God had just created and given this wonderful commission to, to um, have dominion over the whole earth. You may as well go back and believe in everything else the Catholic Church teaches. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a race of people who were themselves at one time in God's good graces. That's why they had the knowledge of good and rebelled against God. And that's why they now have the knowledge of evil, because that concept which we have of knowledge in the ancient world was related directly to the concept of experience. You didn't really have knowledge of something until you experienced it. We can all say we have knowledge through vicarious um, reading and things like that, but you really don't know what you think you know unless you actually experience it. So we all have things that we experience in our lives that we know a lot better than others who haven't. And, and that's just the way life is, because not all of us can experience everything. So this one tree is this race of people who went off into rebellion against God and corrupted his creation. There's a lot of apocryphal literature. The, the, the Book of Enoch, I don't really like the Book of One Enoch because it's Ethiopic and not because it's only because it's Ethiopic, but because it has a lot of interpolations in it and it has a lot of other books that were added to it that don't belong. So I, I prefer the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Enoch, which I believe is a lot closer to being real and other apocryphal literature, which, which substantiates that this particular um group of fallen angels were actually um people here on earth that sought to corrupt god's creation in every way that they could so the serpent is their representative and there is allegory in genesis chapter chapter three which represents um sexual acts and we don't understand that completely today but the way to understand that is to go to ancient sumerian literature these hebrews were not writing in a vacuum moses was in the court was raised in the court of pharaoh he was a very well educated man in the 16th century bc the beginning of the 15th century bc in that era, 
and he had he had to have access being in the court of a king to all of this um, wider world of literature and learning at his time. And Genesis 3 establishes that he certainly did. When you compare his language in Genesis chapter 3 to the language we find in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and we see the same analogies are made about eating fruit and gaining knowledge from the fruit is used of the encounter of giant and Kidu with a prostitute. And the first time that he engages in a sexual act, we see the exact same language which describing his experience with that prostitute that we see here in Genesis chapter 3. So, we know from that and from other idioms like the way eat and touch are used in the book of Proverbs and, and in other scriptures to describe sexual acts. So Genesis chapter 3, we are certain through understanding these ancient Semitic idioms and how they are used in the poetry of related people. The Assyrians were, that this is an Akkadian epic, and the Assyrians were Semites, every bit as the Hebrews were Semites. They shared a wider culture of language and myth. And there are related people, so when we see how they use these idioms, we can understand how the educated Moses was using these idioms. And we see a, an encounter which included an act of sexual awakening in Genesis chapter 3. So Eve is lusting after this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and is caught up in her lust and her desire because it looked like it was good to eat. It was pleasant to the eyes and she slept with it. That's the sin of Eve and the sin of Adam. A lot of people want to argue over whether Adam was actually um, caught up in committing a sexual act or not. It doesn't matter if Adam committed a sexual act or not. If he had sex with anybody from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or not. What matters is that Adam accepted Eve when she did. And that's enough to cause his fall. To accept that grievous sin which his wife committed. By accepting the wife back, you're accepting the sin in, in the Old Testament. So that's enough to cause his fall. If he had sex himself or not, she gave him the fruit and he also ate. If you want to believe that, that's fine. I'm not saying he didn't, but it really don't matter. So it's really nothing that we should be caught up arguing about because it don't matter. So even Adam and, and, and the serpent, curses and punishments are pronounced upon them. But when at the end of this, um, this act, 
and the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. That's exact language from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the same exact language after Enkidu had engaged in sex with the prostitute. His eyes were opened and, and he now had this knowledge that he didn't have before. Well, here we see they knew that they were naked so that, that, that they, they realized that they sinned and they must have realized where the sin was because they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Aprons are garments that cover your loins. The, the word is a or a loincloth or loin covering, according to um, Strong's Concordance and other lexicons. So as soon as they realized that they sinned, they covered the scene of the crime. That this is like right in front of your face, that this is all an allegory speaking about sexual sin. And when we realize what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, we realize that they were race mixing. And that's why even Adolf Hitler said that the sin against blood and race is the original sin of mankind. Hitler understood this in Mein Kampf. He wasn't just making that up. He understood the scriptures to a great extent. I find it um, interesting that uh, obviously they, they sewed fig leaves together, but after that you end up with Yahweh making clothes for them. And then you look at uh, the Negroes who just run around naked with, with no shame whatsoever. And, it, you know, that, that is, again, that's like a correlation to this, that white people wear clothes, the children of God wear clothes, the people of no shame, who don't have any shame, they don't have any clothes either. I think there's a link there. It, it's a description that the age of innocence would be over. When I was a child, I, I got pictures. I mean, I don't really remember it if I didn't have the pictures, but I have some pictures that my mother kept of me and my brother and sister. All right, my sister is 15 months younger than me, and my brother is 11 and a half months younger than her. So we're very close in age, the three of us, right? And I have pictures from when I was three years old, four years old, of all of us in a bathtub together naked. All of us. And think about the innocence of a child. When you see your sister naked, when you're three, four years old, you don't think anything of it. You have no sexual awakening. And and this, that is, it, it's not necessarily that this is the first time that Adam and Eve knew about sex, but that is the allegory that's being depicted here is that the age of innocence is over because they transgressed and had sex with people of other races that it it's you're not going to be innocent anymore now you're going to have to um guard yourself and protect yourself from the possibility of that happening again that's what i believe the clothing represents right you could see your sister naked a thousand times but when you're a little child and never think anything of it. But when you get older and you begin to have sexual awakening, well, now it's not really right to see your sister naked. You see what I mean? It, you, you want your sister to keep her clothes on. 
so, so that you are not tempted or she is not tempted. That's why it's really not right. So when you get older, you don't want to see your sister naked. And, and when you get to a certain age, you don't even want to see your brother naked, right? I mean, that's just the way life is. So that is the image that it's projecting here, that the innocent since is over you screwed up and now we have to guard ourselves and you better stay keep your clothes on that that's it, it i don't believe the the clothes were literal I, I think it represents the awakening to sin and what has to be done to protect against it it's representative of that well, i think there's a link with, with um with with shame as well you know they, they feel they feel shame and you know, shame makes right. shame makes you blush. We we show when we're ashamed because we blush. And and if you look at, as I say, if you look at non-whites, they don't have any shame. They they can't blush, and they run around with it without wearing clothes. So I, I think this, this shame is is linked into it as well because it tells us that that's how they felt. They were they were ashamed at what they had done. Right. Right. To a great extent, I I, I agree with that. Yes, for the most part, I agree with that. That that's part of what I said about the age of innocence being over. That, that um, now they have to be guarded. Now they are aware that there are other races that would have sex with them or lure them into sexual acts and they have to guard against it. You better put your clothes on, right? I, I mean, that's just an allegory for that. So they should be ashamed. <laughs> they should be shamed for what they did. It don't matter. It, it, it don't matter um, how many Kaffirs see pictures of naked white women, but that the Kaffirs would want to have sex with them. So the naked white women better keep their put their clothes back on, but because it's going to lead them to sin, and they did sin in that manner. So I, I think it just represents that concept, that that making of the sheepskins. And then you got the consequences, the, uh, haven't you? You got the consequences then, which is which is when the curse comes in, because obviously Eve is now pregnant. The the covering of the of the with the fig leaves and the making of the sheepskins, you, you know, that also plainly indicates the nature of the crime. To me, the the common idioms used in a sexual act in the Epic of Gilgamesh seals it beyond all doubt. But the making of the clothing alone after the crime, that that should make thinking Christians understand that this is a sexual act, that, that a sexual transgression, a transgression of a sexual nature that happened. And for that reason, they are being punished. And that the woman, uh, I like to call Adam the first feminist, because as soon as Adam was called to account, he blamed his wife. So he was the first feminist, but the woman was deceived. So Adam wasn't deceived, but he blamed, blaming his wife, he, he became a feminist. He should have stepped up like a man and took responsibility for it, right? So, so we see right there that, that um, there's a problem. Adam should never have accepted his wife if she did that on her own. He should have put her away under law. So the first feminist in our recorded history is actually a man and so is the second but that's another long digression i, I won't get into that and anyway anyway 
And God said to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. So Eve admitted her crime right away. What, where Adam just blamed her and, and he sh I don't think he should have done that. So because the serpent beguiled me and I did eat, Yahweh first addressed the serpent. Now, this isn't a snake. This is a snake in the grass, as we use the term. It's a person. It's not a snake. If we want to believe it's a snake, we should go back to the Catholic rituals and become Catholics. Um, th this is a, a person, and the Revelation, chapter 12, tells us the nature of this person, that this is what one of those um, so-called fallen angels that rebelled against God and sought to corrupt his creation. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed, and, and, and upon thy belly shall go, and shall eat dust all the days of thy life. And, and there's a lot of correlations to um, people that we know as Jews and, and, and other races to this that would be superfluous and another long digression to get into right now. But Jews have um, gotten, they have attained everything that they have, all the power they have in our society, all the wealth, all the money came from basically the, the scummiest things that you could imagine in life, which is um, that they were junk dealers, they were rag dealers, but, but they, they used their power of money, that they were usurers, that they were loan sharks. These are all the scummiest low-life things that we have in society, and, and they use that to leverage it to get into gambling and pornography, their history's oldest panderers, that they have, when you think about it, actually gone upon their bellies but by cashing in on, on all of the lowliest things in society to build their power base and to become bankers and, and merchants and, and everything else they've done since then. It, it's a pattern that they set in every society they infiltrate. They use money in totally different ways than Christians use money. So, and, and they're great panderers. So we, we can see that equation. Or, or we should be able to see it. And, and then, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Now, now a lot of people think that the evil people in, in the world are only those who descended from this particular serpent. And we'll get into that momentarily, but I don't believe that. The serpent seed, to me, are that entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil are also the serpent seed. They're all related to, to this serpent. So every branch on that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is somehow related to the serpent. And to me, that means all of the people in the world whom Yahweh God did not take credit for creating in Genesis. Who did Yahweh God take credit for creating in Genesis? There are arguments about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that I won't get into here, but there's only, in the end, one race which Yahweh created, 
and which he took credit for creating. And that's the Adamic race. And every other race I see is a corruption. But here we're going to focus on this one line that we can discern in Genesis chapter 3. And under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. So Eve had conceived. Eve conceived here. She has a conception. In sorrow, thou shalt bring forth children. So Eve is going to have children as a result of this and have them in sorrow. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Why? Because her desire was to this serpent and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's where at least some of these children are coming from, as we shall see. <clears throat> and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife. Right there, Adam is the first feminist. He blamed his wife for the sin, and he obeyed her <clears throat> rather than the other way around. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy, thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee. So Yahweh said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles it shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And we have what I believe are allegories in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3 that are missed by many Christians. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam was given a garden to cultivate. I don't think Adam was just planting tomatoes. I think that represents that Adam is the patriarch of the race. He is the chief figure, and he was given a garden to cultivate, meaning that he was the steward over an Adamic society. And here, where because of his sin, this sin of race mixing, he is told that cursed is the ground for his sake. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. This is talking about people. It's not just talking about having a hard time being a farmer. It's, talk, and it's talking about people. In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread till thou return to the ground. That bread represents the toil and the struggle that Adam is going to have because of this fall from grace, and this particular race-mixing event, these thorns and thistles we see used as allegories throughout Scripture. The Canaanites are described as thorns and thistles who would vex the Israelites. And this is the same allegory that I believe that we see here. The parables of Christ tell us that we don't look for um, we don't seek to find figs among thorns or grapes among thistles, and I'm paraphrasing, and that means that we can't try to take bad people and make them good, because a bad tree does not produce good fruit ever. So these are all allegories for 
um, people and interactions with people. So the primary argument against this is found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where admittedly all versions of the Bible, which we have today, state that Adam knew Eve's wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And even though all Bible versions have it reading basically in that same manner, that doesn't make it true. There are Hebrew Bible scholars who recognize that these um that that this passage is a corrupt passage that it contains a gloss at least one gloss and maybe more and that for that reason it's not an authoritative passage you cannot point to this passage and prove anything this is the only place in scripture where Cain might be said to be a son of Adam. All the rest of scripture refutes the idea that Cain is a son of Adam. Cain is definitely never mentioned anywhere else in scripture as being a son of Adam or included in Adam's genealogy. In um, origin, Origen was an early Christian writer, and I don't agree with everything Origen said. I don't agree with all of his commentaries because I believe that Origen was Judaized to an extent, but Origen was an early Christian writer at Alexandria. He was a pupil, a student of Clement of Alexandria, who was basically a Gnostic, and, and I think that that had an adverse effect on Origen as well. But Origen wrote, he, he did a tremendous work in what we call the hexapla. The hexapla was six versions, that's why it's a hexapla, six versions of scripture. Because there were a lot of different interpretations in the translations and, and in the copies that were available back then as well. The hexapla was six versions of scripture in columns, side by side. So it was a very voluminous work. And that way you could compare the different versions of scripture with relative ease to assist in your study. What is left of Origen's hexapla? Because it didn't survived to us in its entirety, it only survived to us in fragments, is available at Christogenia or Clifton Emmerheiser's website in his paper, The Problem with Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, which was Clifton's um, effort at explaining why Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 is corrupt and why it is not an authority that we could insist, that we could use to insist that Cain was a son of Adam. Because Christ said that Cain was of the devil and that Cain was a devil. 
if Adam, if Cain was Adam's true son, how could he be a devil? How could he be a lie? Christ would be making another false accusation. How could John write in chapter three, I believe, of his first epistle, that Cain was of the wicked one? How could Cain be of the wicked one or of the devil? Could Cain have been a pupil of Satan? Could he have gone to a Satan school and maybe learned from Satan for 20 years, which caused him to go kill Abel? No, that's we, we that's conjecture. That's sheer conjecture. If you want to believe that, go back and believe those magic rituals of the Catholic Church, because you may as well. Cain could only be of the wicked one or of the devil if he was actually fathered by the devil. And Christ reveals that to us where certain things were kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, was that kept secret? purposely by God, or was that kept secret because men who were interlopers, who were intruders, corrupted the scriptures? If we go to Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, we find that the scriptures were corrupted in Jeremiah's time. That's 620 A.D., I'm sorry, 620 BC, 620 years before Christ, Jeremiah testifies that the law of God was corrupted by the scribes. That's why we can't have the truth from Genesis alone. We have to have an understanding of the revelation and parables and other sayings of Christ in order to understand Genesis. That's why, because the scriptures were corrupted by Jeremiah's time. That's before the Septuagint, 350 years before the Septuagint was translated. Weren't the, um, weren't, weren't the scribes the Kenites as well? Am I correct in thinking that? Well, well yes, it says in First Chronicles chapter 2 that certain of the scribes, the Kenites, were scribes in Judah. Yes, it says that. The sons of Rechab. They were Kenites. It mentions Kenites explicitly, and they were scribes in Judah. As we said before, that means that they were derived from Cain. That's that's what the word Kenite means. They came from Cain. It, it's very clear that, that they were infiltrating the kingdom even back then. The, the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, they were constantly trying to infiltrate, and that was the sin of Judah. That's what's described in Jeremiah chapter 2. That's what's described in Ezekiel chapter 16, and, and it's apparent in many other places that the people in Jerusalem and, and the um, children of Israel were always eventually breaking down and accepting these evil people, and the evil people would get ro rule over them. That was what destroyed the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah. That's very clear in, in, in the Old Testament accounts. That's what's destroying all of the European nations today. That same thing, that same pattern 
is as old as Genesis chapter 3. When you get Origins Hexapla and you examine Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it is translated five different ways in five surviving versions, in five surviving columns, which proves that the ancients did not know how to read that verse. If they can't figure it out, if they can't agree on it, how the hell can we use it as an authority to create Christian doctrine? We can't. The verse is practically meaningless. When you go to the, the Aramaic Targums, now the Aramaic Targums are preserved in the Talmud, but that doesn't make them necessarily Talmudic. They are early interpretations of scripture. I can't tell you whether they actually came from Hebrews or from Edomites. Some of them are fantastic and have really ridiculous excuses in them for various aspects of scripture. So they're not an authority. But if you go to the Aramaic Targums, or if you go to Christian writings of the first century, such as the fourth book of Maccabees, they understand the sexual nature of the sin of Genesis chapter 3. And the Aramaic Targum versions of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 rewrite the passage to explain that one fallen angel or another was actually the father of Cain. Is that authoritative by itself? No. But it shows that early, once again, that early commentators and early interpreters of Scripture understood that there was a severe problem with Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It cannot be accepted as an authority on its own. The real authority is the fact that Cain's first Cain's genealogy, the, the resulting genealogy of Cain, is recorded at the end of Genesis chapter 4. Moses, 4,000 years later, felt it important to list at least the notable descendants of Cain. But Cain, after he kills Abel, is ejected from the garden of God. He's ejected from the presence of his parents, and he goes off into the land of Nod. Now, what the hell is the land of Nod? And this is another thing that most Christians do not understand. We have a tree of the knowledge of Benito, which to me represents a race with many branches. And we have that old serpent representing that tree. But Yahweh God makes a garden. A garden is what? A garden is a specific delineated area that you're going to mark off in order to plant something specific, right? So outside of that garden is the land of Nod. And the word Nod means wandering in Hebrew. 
And the concept of wandering is used to describe sin all throughout the scriptures, and especially in the words of Paul in the New Testament, a Greek verb which means wandering, which we actually get our word plane from, plano or planeo, this Greek verb planeo was used as what means wandering was used to describe sin by Paul of Tarsus and, and by other writers wandering off the path, wandering off the way is to transgress the law, to depart from the will of God throughout the Bible. So the land of Nod is basically the land of sin. And I see that as the land where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is ubiquitous. And Cain goes off to the land of Nod, and what does he do? He finds a wife. He builds a city. He doesn't build a hut or a cabin, which is all that would be required for him and his wife, or not even a house. He builds a city. So this wife must have had a whole bunch of her kin with her for Cain to to need to build a city. So, even if you had one child a year for for 30 years, you wouldn't really have to build a city. You might have to build a big house, but not necessarily a city. So, So, we see an indication, a strong indication in the fate of Cain that that tree of knowledge of good and evil actually is at, at least a race of people that exist outside the garden and and at least one of them had crept into the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the midst of the garden. These people were able to walk into that garden and seduce Eve, causing Adam and Eve to sin. So they are a race that was ubiquitous outside of the garden. Cain sees or an encounters them and finds a woman to marry and has children. So all of the descendants of Cain are of the wicked one. They are of the serpent. When we get to Genesis chapter six, we see these so-called fallen angels that come and seduce and start taking wives of the daughters of men, of the daughters of Adam. And there are problems with the Masoretic text in that area too. And without getting into it too deeply, I had done a paper on that at Christogenia titled The Problem with Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4. And and That's because there are also varying interpretations and varying um, labels in ancient literature, in apocryphal literature, in Enoch, for what those sons of God were, as they're called in the King James Version. And in most biblical versions, where in in, in certain manuscripts of the Septuagint, They aren't sons of God. They are sons of heaven or angels. And in the Enoch literature, they're called sons of heaven or angels. And these fallen angels 
would be the sons of heaven. So if we correct that, the entire Genesis 6 narrative becomes very clear that these were the sons of heaven, that they were the same um, people from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil who had been taking the daughters of men or the daughters of Adam to wife. And race mixing to the point where first there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, if you really read Genesis chapter six, it doesn't say that the giants were the, um, were the children of these unions. There were giants in the earth in those days indicates to us the nature of these so-called sons of God, which I would insist should say sons of heaven. The word giants is Nephilim or fallen ones, which must refer to the people that the apostles in Christ described as fallen angels, these Nephilim that were related to that old serpent. This is simply to me that race of people here on earth that rebelled against God and fell from his grace. And now they are coming into the land of the children of Adam and taking their, their daughters for wives. And that created these men of renown, these mighty men, which we see mentioned in the next verse, in verse 4 of, of Genesis chapter 6. And when you go to the Epic of Gilgamesh, you see very similar language that quote-unquote gods came down from heaven and had sex with the daughters of men, and, and, and the result was Gilgamesh, who was called a giant, and who had ruled over cities because of his great cunning and prowess. And that is also, if you read Hesiod, the Greek poet, the Greek epic poet, Hesiod, and go to his poem, Theogony, Theogony, T-H-E-O-G-O-N-Y, which is one of his most famous poems, you will see that all of the ancient Greek heroes and, and kings were, were said to have descended from this union of gods and women on earth. The Greek epic poetry came right from Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 has its parallels in the epic of Gilgamesh, which tells the same story, but from a pagan perspective, rather than from the, the godly perspective, which is evident in the Hebrew literature. You go to Genesis chapter 15, and we see that the Canaanites, who are the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim, Rephaim are giants. And when we examine the books of Kings and Chronicles, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, not Kings, but First and Second Samuel, and the nature of the giant Goliath, and, and the books of Chronicles called the brothers of Goliath Rephaim. So the Rephaim are still around Palestine, at least some of the Rephaim are still around Palestine in the days of Goliath, in, in the days of David. 
King David. And his men are said to have exterminated at least most of the Rephaim from Israel. That don't mean they're not all over the place because people move and travel and do what they want. That the, um, the Anakim in the stories of Joshua and Judges, we see these Anakim and they're also giants. And Og of Bashan, who has a bed 12 cubits, which is or, or I'm sorry, nine cubits, which is about 13 and a half feet, just as bed. Now I'm six, four and my bed's about seven feet, right? So imagine how big Og of Bashan was. Well, well, Og of Bashan is one of the Anakim and, and Goliath is one of the Rephaim. And the truth is that they are both from the Nephilim. The Anakim are Nephilim, and, and the scripture tells us that. But Anak was one of the famous Nephilim, so his race, the Anakim, was named after him. Rapha was a giant. He was one of the Nephilim, and his descendants were called Rephaim after him. So the Rephaim are descended from these that these um, men, these bastards, this bastard race created in Genesis chapter 6. And so are the Kenites. Survive. The Kenites, the descendants of Cain, survived the flood. And, and they're mentioned in Genesis chapter 15. So, of course, the flood couldn't have been worldwide. There are other tribes mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, which are not found in Genesis chapter 10, like the Kenizzites and the Perizzites. So we see that there are people around, in and around Palestine at the time of Abraham, which is 1,300 years after the flood by the Septuagint chronology, which I believe is better better than a Masoretic text, which is corrupted. 1,300 years after the flood, we have Kenites, Rephaim, and other people. And they intermarried and mingled with these Canaanites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, and all the other tribes related to Canaan. Now, Canaan was cursed, and that's probably what we should talk about next. But we see them all mingled together, and that is how the blood of Cain and the serpent got down into the Edomites and the Canaanites and the historical people that were present in Judea at the time of Christ. I'll just bring up um, something something else there, Bill. Um, you're talking about the the proofs that are in the Bible for Cain not not coming from Adam, and uh, what Origen was writing at the time in the first century. The apocryphal book that isn't actually part of the apocrypha, the books of Adam and Eve. They must have been written about the third or the, or the fourth century, and it's quite clear from the way that those are written that this was understood at the time. I mean, it's got a whole chapter in it about um, the, the daughters of Cain and the daughters of Adam. And it, it makes it very, very clear that there was a, there was an instruction that, that the, um, the the sons and daughters of Adam must never have anything to do with the offspring of Cain. And and after the after the flood, there were all these people there. They, they, they come out of the ark or whatever, and there are all these people there. So it must have been understood at the time. Yes, there was people 
after the flood because they they put this into this and yes there was there was a ban on mixing with the descendants of Cain they, they must not have intercourse with the descendants of Cain that it that that is one of the strongest points that it makes and it's not like scripture but it just gives us an idea of the way that the people at the time understood scripture and, and what it was telling them I think there is a um there is a wealth of early Christian apocryphal literature which supports what we are saying, that it's apocryphal for a reason. I mean, that there were a lot of um, people in the formation of the early um, Roman Catholic Church, and, and before that, there were a lot of early Christian writers who tried to get rid of the epistle of Jude and the second epistle of Peter, because the epistle of Jude and the second epistle of Peter are rife with references to this race of fallen angels that had that was infiltrating and corrupting the assemblies of Christ in the first century. And, and the people of God in the first century. And Jude and Peter understood it and related these corruptors and false teachers and false prophets of the first century to the fallen angels. It's very clear in, in both the epistles of Jude and the second epistle of Peter in chapter 2, and Jude and Peter use much of the same language. So they try to discredit those epistles all the way back in the second century. They were trying to get those epistles out of our Bibles so that they could relegate them to the dustbin of history. But they didn't succeed, thankfully. I just had a thought there, Bill, as well, that both of those epistles, I mean, when, when they were referring to the fallen angels and they say that they're, they're on earth and they're bound in chains of darkness, I, I'm just wondering if that word there, darkness, obviously it's a Greek word, but whether it would be the same as the Hebrew word for darkness, Arab, Arab. Well, right. so, so many, well, well, it's a Greek word, so I can't say which Hebrew word that they would have gotten it from, but that, that's a good correlation because that Hebrew word Arab is mixed, and, and, and it means to grow dark, but it also referred to things that were mixed. And, and um, that was why these Arabs are called Arabs today, because they're all mixed. <laughs> but actually, you know, a lot of... Christians, the church reads everything backwards and takes advantage of allegories to get us to believe these fantastic tales which disconnect us from the reality of our existence and our history. The church will draw pictures of angels bound up and, and tied up in chains in a pit off in the middle of the desert somewhere. And, and naive Christians will believe these tales that these angels are bound in chains sitting in darkness. But the apostles never said that the angels were bound in chains in darkness. 
the apostles all said, both of them that used the, the terminology, Peter and Jude, said that the angels were bound in chains of darkness. So the darkness is the chains. The substance of the chains is darkness. They're not literal chains. <laughs> these are people that they, they describe these angels bound in chains of darkness as people walking around corrupting the assemblies of God. Every rabbi, every Jew is basically the descendant of a fallen angel who is now bound in chains of darkness. They can't see the light. That's why they can't see the light. That's why they corrupt everything they touch because they will never come to the light. They're bound in chains of darkness. It's not a punishment from God that they're bound in chains of darkness. It's the inevitable outcome of the sins that their ancient ancestors committed, which caused them to be bound in chains of darkness. And they're always going to be bound in chains of darkness until they're destroyed, which is why the apostle said that the angels bound in chains of darkness are awaiting the destruction of the great day. We owe them a holocaust, and they are going to get it. You got form and function there as well, haven't you? You got you got um, you got the form as in as in the dark skin and the function as you as you pointed out. They're they're unable to see the light due to the darkness. Well, right. That there's no you know there are they serious, can't get away from it. Uh, there are profound truths in the very language that we use to describe God's creation, and there is no real separation between that language and the truths that the realities of creation all throughout our existence white has been good black has been evil and those that language was used to describe those concepts in every civilization when we when when we see um there are relations in, in the words. Wheat is white, that they're related words, and Christ uses wheat to describe things that are good. And, and tares are red and, and when they're fully ripe. And, and we see that um, red describes communism, and, and Edom means red, and, and even though Adam means red, Adam means red for a different reason. That the um, what we see this language that we use, the truth is in the language that we use that we have always used as a race. Light is good and darkness is is sinister. In in fact, sinister comes from a Roman word which was used to describe the left. So so <laughs> as opposed to the right. <laughs> so so we see that um. That there are many truths in our basic everyday language, and, and we've been programmed to ignore these truths. If you have white skin, you're good. If, if you have dark skin, you're evil. And, and that's always been understood in antiquity. 
it, it's wow. It, it's um, darkness has always been associated with evil, and it's not a coincidence. <laughs> it's simply not. It, in it, fact, up until the, the the 19th century, up until the 19th century, many American Protestants believed that black people were black because they had the curse of Cain. And that's what Negro slaves were taught on American plantations. And I would say that it's true. It's true in a very um, simple and naive manner, but it's true nonetheless. Why, why would you say that then, Bill? Because I always thought that the curse of Cain, the idea of the curse of Cain, that, that came about through the Jews because they, they put that in their Talmud. That, um, Aye, but, Negroes, but Negroes are products of the trees that are, of the knowledge of good and evil. Yahweh God did not create Negroes. Ah, the consequences of, a, of another curse, not, not, the curse of, um, not the curse of Noah, but uh, the curse of Yahweh. Like I, said, <coughs> like I said, the seed of the serpent even though because of early race mixing, the Canaanites, the Kenites, the Rephaim have always resembled us. And for that reason, they have been able to infiltrate among us and corrupt us all through history. And that reflects the gravity of that first sin in, in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6. That reflects that gravity. So even though they have resembled us and for that reason have been um, had a lot of our abilities and attributes and, and even been craftier and more cunning throughout history than we can be, even though they have those attributes and for that reason they've been able to infiltrate and subvert our societies, as I said at the beginning – Every branch on that tree of knowledge of good and evil is basically related to the seed of the serpent. In far antiquity. So they all um, bear the same curses and stigma upon those original fallen angels. In my opinion. Am I right in thinking the the wheat and the tares? They they both. They, I mean, the point of that is that they both look the same at first. You can't tell the difference between the wheat and the tares in, until the tares have actually grown, and then and then they look different to the wheat. So that that would imply that originally, you know, they, they these people they they look very similar to us. Okay, is that to be accepted only on a generational level, or is that to be accepted over all time? Well, no, I just mean originally, you know, they would they would have looked similar to us, and then well, uh, well that is over true. time. That's they how they've infiltrated. Us. Yeah, that's how they infiltrated us. But it it is clear in the revelation that these other races are the flood which comes from the mouth of the serpent. that they're related to the serpent. They're not related to us. Yeah, that's where they, that's where they come from originally. I, I'm just thinking that, that, you know, that, that parable, it's a very clever parable. I mean, it's, it's not saying there are, there are white people and black people. It's saying there are people that look, that look similar to you that come from the serpent. 
Well, well, right. And that was true in the first century. And, and, and it's been true all throughout history. But these, what my point was, was that these black people, they bear this curse of Cain. That's how it was tr related to them. That's how it was explained to them in the 19th century. But in truth, they are related to Cain through that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they didn't come from God, that they came from the corruption of the creation of God. And even, um, even in recent times, the Jews have heavily inter-race mixed with Negroes. So it, it's, it, even though I said it's a simplistic and naive way to see Negroes, it certainly has some underlying truths because the black is related to to the fallen angels, to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, rather than being related to the white Adamic man. Yeah, I think I was getting a bit mixed up there. Because in, the, in the Talmud, the, the Jews talk about it was Noah's curse on Canaan that turned him black, not not the curse of Cain. And that that's where the modern day church gets this idea that that's why blacks are black, because they turn they magically turned black at that point, which was like the Jews' way to excuse it, to, to try and distract people from these truths, I think. They always have. They always have. And, and it's worse than that. It's I, I have seen many Judeo-Christians refer to the curse of Ham. Ham was cursed. And that's not true, even though Canaan was cursed because of Ham's sin. And we could explain that momentarily. The curse was never put on Ham. The curse was put on Canaan alone, on one of Ham's descendants. Ham, if, if you look at Ham's sons, Nimrod was a son of Cush. Nimrod founded what we can call the first Adamic Babylonian empire, Nimrod, and, and that's described in Genesis chapter 10, and, and all of Arabia is called the land of Cush all the way to the time of Moses. So, and, and Moses went to Arabia for a wife. He didn't go to, to the south. He went to the Midianites who were his own kin through Abraham and got a wife of the Midianites in the land of Cush in Arabia. Well, That was a white society. It wasn't a black society. Early Egypt was a white society. Mitzrayim was the son of Ham. He wasn't cursed. Egypt was was loved at the beginning by God. And 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 that, look at the history of, of um, Joseph and and the good pharaohs of Egypt. And there's a reason why a pharaoh came along that was evil, and that's because the Egyptian pharaohs started mixing with the Hittites. But early Egypt was a great society, and it was a white society. So Ham wasn't cursed, but you'll hear Judeo-Christians talk about the curse of Ham, and that comes from the Jews, from the Talmud, which shows the extent of Jewish influence over Christianity, even when the Bible says something completely different in plain language. Going to Genesis, going back to Genesis chapter 9, Ham saw his father's nakedness and Canaan 
was cursed. So in order to understand exactly what that is, we can go to the um, we could go to the law. We could go to Leviticus chapter twenty, verse eleven. And the man that lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now Ham and his his own mother, his father's wife, back in Genesis chapter nine. They were not put to death because this law came 1,500 years later, 1,800 years later, this law came. So this law wasn't a law in the days of Noah. So there was no punishment except that Canaan was cursed. Canaan must have been the result of Ham lying with his own mother for him to be cursed. Ham's other sons were not cursed. There's a, there's the a correlation end. with that as well, Bill. Um, in Slightly before that, Genesis 9.18, it says, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Why does it say Ham is the father of Canaan there? It's listing the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark. So it must have been thought that Canaan was was a brother of Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth. Otherwise, that verse wouldn't be there, and they wouldn't be making the point that actually Ham is the father of Canaan, not Noah. Well, well right, absolutely, and 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 that's exactly what I believe. That that's the first indication of how Canaan came to be, because Canaan's not even the eldest son of Ham. He's not listed first. In, in any of the genealogies. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzraim and Foot and Canaan. Canaan's listed last in all the genealogies of Ham, indicating that he's the youngest son by, by order of birth, but Ham is the son of Canaan in Genesis chapter 9, he's mentioned even before this, the, 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 the sin happened, this being written many years later, no, Moses is indicating to us that Canaan was singled out because he was a product of the sin. The man that uncovered his father's nakedness, it's not a sin to see your father naked. We, we'd all be dead. But it's a sin to sleep with your father's wife. Whether or not she's your mother, it's still a sin to sleep with your father's wife. And that's a penalty liable to death, but not at the time of Genesis chapter 9. So the result is that Canaan is cursed. Canaan bearing this curse would have been relegated to the land of Nod or or its equivalent at this time because nobody else would have wanted to intermarry with him. His his cousins, his first cousins and second cousins would not have wanted to intermarry with him. So we see Canaan a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 15 is in his own land and even though his descendants become quite numerous, he's with the Rephaim and the Kenites and, and these other races who don't even have a genealogy in Scripture. 
who aren't even mentioned in scripture, so they must be outsiders. The Kenizzites, the Perizzites, the, I, I think, the Girgashites, that there are three or four tribes in Genesis chapter 15 in the land of Canaan that aren't mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 in the line of Adam. Girgashites are there. But there are several who, which, which aren't. Oh, no, Girgashites are not. Girgashites are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. They're only mentioned in Genesis chapter 15. So where did they come from? Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Perizzites, and Girgashites are all alien tribes, and the Kenites are the descendants of Cain, and the Rephaim are, are the so-called giants. So we see that, that this entire land of Canaan is made up of basically cursed people mingled with the Canaanites. And that is the group that had corrupted the early Israelites. That is the group that constantly tried to infiltrate into the kingdom kingdoms of Israel and Judah. They infiltrated into all the surrounding nations as well. It didn't stop at, at Israel and Judah. They infiltrated Egypt. The Hittites were intermarrying with the pharaohs. It, that the same thing was going on. The Mitanni kingdom, what was dominated, in, in northern Mesopotamia was dominated by Horites, who were Hurrians, who were a branch of the Canaanites. They infiltrated Babylonia. In, in fact, the Canaanite is credited with originally founding Babylon. The, the legal code of Amraphel or, or Hammurabi, he was a Canaanite. The, he... The, the Canaanites, yeah, yeah, they tried to mimic the other Adamic nations and, and tend towards civilization, but they were corrupt. Sodom and Gomorrah was a product of the Canaanites. And, and we see today the Jew and, and how he promotes sodomy and everywhere he goes. And they always have all through time. It's their natural inclination. What do you think of that? Um, later on, I mean, part of Noah's curse, he says, well, you, will, you will serve your brothers. And I, I think that kind of messed up God's plans because when the Israelites were told to wipe out the Canaanites, um, there was an instance where they were tricked into doing a treaty with them and the Canaanites ended up being the the hewers of wood and the fetchers of water. So they ended that that curse of Noah's ended up being fulfilled and it actually prevented the Canaanites from being completely wiped out by the Israelites. Well, well right. And it was deeper than that because if you, if you examine the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that Solomon was using the Canaanites as slaves, had enslaved them. When they should have been driving them out, they used them as slaves. But earlier than that, as you mentioned, in the days of Joshua, the Gibeonites, who were really Canaanites, had tricked, used that same old Jewish cunning, Jewish cunning and pity, because they dressed themselves up, themselves up as poor vagabonds that were hungry, that only poor had Jews. moldy bread and traveled from a far place. That That's the same typical Jewish yeah. um, ploy of attracting pity to manipulate white 
empathy and altruism, the same ploy that we see all through history, the Gibeonites used to get the Israelites to pity them and make a treaty of peace with them. Amazing, isn't it? The way it just repeats itself. <laughs> David Duke is a fool. If you want to find Jews in the Bible, look at the Canaanites and the descendants of Cain, and you'll find Jews all over the place. If you want to find Aryans in the Bible, the Israelite culture was built on the rule of law, a sense of justice, and care for the poor and the widows, and an agricultural society. That's exactly where you get the word Aryan from, isn't it? Agrarian, yeah. the agrarian society. Absolutely. I think we probably talked enough for for this for this episode. Yeah, yeah, we got it, we got it all in there. I think everything we wanted to cover. That's great. Thank you. I hope. I, I hope people get it. I, I know it's all over the place sometimes, but I hope people get it and see the correlations. Thank you, Sven. Thank you, Bill. Praise Yahweh. God bless and, you. And we will, we will talk again soon. Okay. Probably next Saturday. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to discuss where we're going next Saturday. Um, you've been basically piloting this ship since we came back or, <laughs> or maybe longer than that. So well, it might we'll be good it. to might be good to look at, um, at Paul because he, uh, he often gets um, misunderstood, I think. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Paul's misunderstood in very places, very many places. And that's actually why I set out to make a translation. I only started with Paul. I didn't intend on translating the entire New Testament. I had started learning Greek and studied for five years and four years maybe before I started a translation of Paul. And the Christogenian New Testament is the result of that. But Paul is the most mistranslated author in history, I think. So that's why I started on that endeavor. I started with Romans. Okay. Okay. Thank Look you. Forward to it. Thank you. Praise Christ.